Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, as uh, Greg was saying, Apple shares are down for the worst two-day route since April 28th, 2016, giving up some of the unbelievable gains this year. Just to put into perspective, even with the past two days of losses, uh, Apple shares are up more than 26% year to date. Shira Oviday is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, uh, and she joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Shira, uh, you know, first of all, before we get to uh, sort of whether this route can deepen, why? I mean, is this just basically to be expected after such a massive rally earlier in the year? Yeah, there's no particular trigger for the tech stock and it's not just Apple, right? All a lot of the big tech stocks, including right. Google and Facebook and Amazon and Nvidia, the chip company that has been one of the better performing tech stocks Fang. of the last couple of years, Fang plus others, uh, they are all you know getting punched in the nose basically since Friday, and th- there's no particularly good reason. But as you pointed out, a lot of those tech stocks have done exceptionally well this year, and have helped drive. Uh, you know, the overall stock market in the U.S. up. And so I think there was a little bit of a realization that, oh, shoot, maybe this has gotten a little bit overdone and we need to sell and move into other sectors of of the industry of technology and beyond. Well, I was just looking, for example, at the NASDAQ and you'd have to shed another 110 points, let's say, just to get back to the 50-day moving average. And you'd have to lose even more to get to the uh, 90-day and the, um, uh, well, the even longer, the 200-day moving average. So the technicals are not looking great uh, for the technology stocks. Apple, let's talk specifically about uh, Apple. The most recent conversation we've had has to do with a Qualcomm chip and an Intel chip going into their newest iPhone and how they're going to limit the speed in the iPhone to the Intel chip because they do not offer this fast processing power. Has Apple gotten to the point where it is so big that it cannot find enough vendors to offset the potential for picking a vendor that they're going to either be in a lawsuit with or provides technology that doesn't match what Apple wants? So Apple is always very conscious about becoming overly reliant on one or two parts suppliers, particularly of crucial parts like computer chips that go into its phones, right? Uh, And modem chips, which is the Qualcomm Intel issue. Um, The the issue is there are only two companies, Intel and Qualcomm, that are really at scale suppliers of these kind of crucial modem chips where the phone is basically connecting with cellular networks. And uh, Qualcomm is the undisputed leader, but Apple doesn't want to become too reliant on Qualcomm, in part because Qualcomm and Apple are now engaged in this very messy, angry, uh, high stakes financial litigation over whether Qualcomm is kind of overcharging for uh, its chips to Apple and others. Uh, And so as a consequence, Apple wants to have a little bit of, um, you know, vendor choices. And it's it's using both Apple and I'm sorry, Intel and Qualcomm chips in the phones. Well, you know, we were talking to John Butler about this last week of Bloomberg Intelligence. He was saying, "Okay, look, yes, Apple may not have the highest speed, uh, 
connection available to its new iPhone. But most people aren't going to care. And frankly, people who are in the iPhone world and are uh, devotees to Apple are going to stay devotees to Apple. And I just have to wonder, you know, at this point, is this dip in the share prices, does this signify that people have reached their limit in buying on pure faith that something is going to change? And a shift into show me mode. And that's gonna. this is going to really be uh, a shift in sentiment that isn't necessarily going to mean a deep sell-off, but will mean more skepticism going forward and a need to see more evidence that they can, can sustain the growth that they have seen in the past. I, I think that's a very good point. Look, the, the fact remains that the run-up we've seen in Apple's share price this year and, and starting last late last year is largely because of expectations of a big surge in iPhone sale sales starting later this year when Apple's expected to introduce a new kind of uh, dramatically overhauled iPhone. And if that thing doesn't sell like hotcakes, I don't know what happens to Apple's share price. You, you, you saw one of the uh, Mizuho, one of the Apple analysts downgrade the stock uh, this morning or overnight on basically saying, look, a lot of the enthusiasm for this new iPhone is going to have you know, a fancier screen and um, all kinds of advanced features. If A lot of that enthusiasm is already baked into the share price. So th- that's the big risk for Apple. I'm just curious. You have any idea what the new iPhone 8 might cost? There are some reports that it could be upwards of a thousand dollars. Yes, we don't know. Um, the, the reporting from Bloomberg and others has said there's going to be three new models of the iPhone: the you know regular iPhone, the high, larger screen plus model, and then this kind of third probably fancier and even more expensive iPhone model. And yes, yeah, some of the reports are it might cost a thousand dollars or more, which is kind of a staggering sum to think about paying for, you know, a slab of glass and circuits. You could use an eye bill on your Apple Watch <laughs> and maybe through Apple Pay. Shira Oviday, thank you so much for joining us. Shira Oviday is a technology columnist with Bloomberg Gadfly and joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Emerging markets debt has absolutely been in a hot spot this year. I'm just looking, and that flows to mutual funds, most of which track some kind of broad index. Inflows total more than $40 billion to emerging markets debt uh, so far this year. To get some perspective on why the flows have been so intense and what these people are really investing in, I want to bring in Damien Sassauer. He's a fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Damien, I was looking at the biggest ETF that focuses on emerging markets debt. And last week alone, this ETF had some unprecedented flows Almost a billion dollars in a week coming in. And yet you pointed out in recent research that the underlying index is actually getting weaker from a credit perspective. Yeah, no, that's right. So in terms of credit quality, Lisa, um, what we're seeing are um, a lot of EM high yield sovereigns being added to the index. We're seeing, I guess, you know, fundamentally weaker corporate and quasi-sovereign credits, specifically in the financial sector, coming from some... Um, some suspect uh, uh, EM economies, such as Nigeria, which I pointed out. I mean, just last week, we saw the Ivory Coast um, issue 
nearly $2 billion in hard currency bonds, yet only a month ago, <laughs> there was a four-day mutiny by soldiers. And in 2011, the company, uh, the company, the country defaulted on its sovereign bonds. So, I mean, these are not, um, you know, these are just not uh, your everyday high-quality credits. And you were talking about a Nigerian bank that sold debt. It was the first benchmark bond offering, benchmark-eligible bond offering from a Nigerian bank since 2014, and Nigerian banks have a history of defaulting, no? Well, that, that's correct. So, I mean, Access Bank issued at the end of last year, but they are not benchmark-eligible. They're only $300 million, although that might make them eligible for the J.P. Morgan, and hence the EMB ETF, but the Bloomberg Barclays EM Hard Currency Ag, which is, you know, the broad measure that we follow here, you have to have a minimum $500 million in issuance in order to be included within that index. So we don't really, we didn't really include access in our analysis. But Zenith Bank, who just um, issued last week and, and I'm sorry, last month, and then UBA on the heels of that, they're having no problem tapping these markets. And they're, <laughs> you know, it's, it's green light go for Nigeria. Four and a half percent. That's the yield, at least currently, on the Bloomberg Barclays Emerging Markets U.S. Dollar Aggregate Bond Index, right? About four and a half percent. Yep. What kind of duration risk are people taking on to get that whopping four and a half percent? You know, that is a great point. I mean, Pim, you know, on the sovereign side, what you're seeing now is the duration has, I think, extended out nearly seven years. So you're getting seven-year EM sovereign debt, you know, and, and the way you have to look it's at that index- It's almost like buying a car, right? <laughs> I mean, because the, the the car payments, right? I mean, you 60 months and uh, I, those, no money I, down. Pim, those Ivory Coast bonds have a 16-year maturity. I mean, 16 years. I mean, this, again, is a country that defaulted last in 2011, and a month ago, you know, they, there was a mutiny by- by the oh, military. Yeah, meanwhile, 4.5% is not very much relative to history, right? So this isn't exactly Correct. a high yield that investors are getting. Uh, that said, a lot of investors continue to pour money into this space, and you hear a lot of sophisticated money managers, uh, including PIMCO, say, you know what? You do have developing markets uh, that in some cases hold more promise than developed markets where rates are really low and growth is slowing and the population is aging. So how do you sort of square these ideas? Well, I think, I think you know, shifting to high grade and this is an important point that a lot of people also aren't considering. Um, GCC, the Middle East, has, I mean, there have been massive, massive issues from Saudi Arabia, from Oman, from Kuwait. I'm talking eight, nine, ten. I mean, just last year, we know Saudi issued 19 billion, but they just did a Sukuk issue this year for nine billion on top of that. I mean, their leverage at the sovereign level has increased. <laughs> it's just been huge. So now, you know, you look at these countries, these are countries that generate their revenue through oil. And if oil stays weak or continues to weak, and these are high grade, you know, single double A credits that are fundamentally weaker also. But again, you know, forgive me, those are high grade credit quality issues, right? Well, so. but, but the reason why I ask is because you do have so much money coming in, you do have yields dropping at a faster pace in some cases than similarly rated U.S credit. And you have to wonder, are people uh, just blind to this risk and going into indexes that have all sorts of things that they're not aware of? Or are people fully aware, but they, they still think that there's an attractiveness here. Well, Mohammed Arian, I mean, he he said that fundamental. You know, we've pretty much decoupled from fundamentals, and I, I have to kind of agree in large respect to that. I mean, if you just look at the three drivers, we just did our mid-year outlook um, at BI on the EM side, and if you just look at China five-year CDS, um, the U.S. dollar, and oil prices collectively, they are. I mean, EM spreads are eighty percent correlated to those three factors, and those three factors alone are responsible for determining sixty percent of the movement in EM credit spreads over the last two years using weekly data. So, yeah, it's market, it's external factors that are driving spreads. 
So if there are external factors driving spreads, external factors could also make these investments go south pretty quickly. If 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 they do go the other way, Pim, that's exactly what makes Because there's hurdle. nothing underneath it, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there's no bid that is holding this up, or is there? I'm not, uh, I am not an oil, uh, I am not the right guy to be talking to about the, well, I mean, the future in terms direction of, the, of oil of the prices. sovereign debt, for example, I mean, it's not as if you're going to find the Bank of Japan buying Nigerian government bonds. <laughs> Um, you're right. I, I mean, look, you know, I mean, it's it's funny how some of these uh, some of these EM portfolios where, you know, who's buying them and where they're winding up these days and how people are, you know, looking for incremental yield in new places. So for all I know, the Bank of Japan could be buying EM hard currency. Bonds. I mean, you've been you've been covering this area for a long time, Damien. And have you seen a shift with investors going more into indexed strategies? And could that pose a risk? Yes. Now that that is definitely a risk. If if flows turn the other way. I mean, I think, you know, and again, I'm going to you know, use my colleague, Mike McGlone, who runs commodity, uh, who's the commodity strategist at BI, you know, EM takes the escalator up and the elevator down. And, you know, when things turn the other way and sentiment shifts uh, negatively, you could really see, you know, spreads, uh, you know, potentially widen quite, quite, quite quickly. I wonder if you could use Petrobras, the uh, Brazilian uh, oil giant, as an example of some of the things that can happen that you don't expect and they're trying to get ahead of the game, but it's challenging. You know, uh, Petrobras is an interesting one because uh, you know, they, they've done a great job. Look, they're coming off a low base and they have effectively been extending their maturities, restructuring their debt, that they've been selling uh, non-core assets. They've actually been cleaning up their balance sheet. So all this negative, you know, uh, Misha Goss we're talking about with regard to EM credit, Petrobras, I can't put in that category. They've done a really good job of cleaning things up. And and look, there are examples of that, you know, where, you know, fundamentally the companies are getting better. And and so, you, you know, it's a big universe. It's a $2 trillion universe, you know, at least if you're looking at the, the Bloomberg Barclays, you know, kind of uh, aggregate. And, you know, you've got uh, you've got good stories and you've got bad stories. I want to thank you very much for giving us the story. As always, <laughs> Damien Sassauer, expert when it comes to fixed income strategies for Bloomberg Intelligence. In fact, he just knows everything about emerging markets. Much appreciated. I want to bring in Jeffrey Korzenik, Chief Investment Strategist at Fifth Third Bank in Chicago, to talk about an issue that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Uh, after President Trump withdrew from the Paris Accord, we heard executives from Disney, Goldman Sachs, IBM, Tesla's Elon Musk come out denouncing the decision and saying that this was a big, big mistake. But the mood was very different among small business owners. And I want to get a sense of how they responded to this and why. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, can you just give us a sense in your discussions with uh, businesses in middle America, smaller businesses, why is it that some of them have embraced this decision for the U.S. to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord? Uh, for the most part, it's not because it directly impacts their business, but it's the symbolism. Uh, the, from, from their standpoint, this is a president who is still on track uh, with many of the campaign promises towards deregulation. They understand that the Paris Accords would carry some burdens uh, uh, with it for uh, for uh, regulation, particularly the energy sector. Energy drives a lot of manufacturing. So, so they're seeing this as the symbolic value of uh, yet another 
step that supports deregulation, and that's really important to small business owners. Can you, um, can you just bring in the debate about health care as well? Because sure. that also is a focus of small business owners, and it is something that will affect their bottom line. Sure. Well, one of the things that um, I think is important is the definition. When I speak about small business owners, I often hear from people who are are, uh, sole proprietors or have one or two employees. Uh, What I'm really talking about is the economic definition of small business, which is generally 500 employees or or fewer. when you get uh, my observation is that when you get to the 50 to a couple hundred employees that's where they feel the burdens the most so the affordable health care has has uh, been a a uh, costly imposition um, and again this is from their viewpoint, this is as citizens, we just can decide whether this is good or bad. But from their standpoint, it's a cost, uh, costly imposition of new rules and requirements. Many of the environmental, many of the labor laws, all of these things have been uh, particularly burdensome. Small business owners view this differently. Uh, these are generally privately held businesses. Any dollar cost of regulation or, or other requirement is essentially a dollar out of their pocket. So they f- uh, take it very personally. That doesn't mean it's right or wrong. Uh, that they should take it this way, but it's certainly understandable. So, Jeffrey, um, I don't have the sense that there have been huge sweeping changes made yet that will materially change their outlook. Am I wrong with about that? No, I, I think that's right, but um, there is a broad understanding um, in, the, in the businesses that I've spoken to, and I speak in front of thousands of small business owners every year and speak directly to hundreds over the course of the year, there is an understanding that uh, much of the deregulation can be accomplished through the executive branch, and so they see that as something that is uh, moving forward. Uh, I don't believe they're out over their skis and anticipating too much progress on legislative action. They're not banking on that. as it's been explained to me, it's not just deregulation. It's the, the fact that the uh, constant adding of regulations that was going on has halted. And that, I think, is fair to say. And, and Jeffrey, do you get the sense that among these hundreds of small businesses that you speak with uh, every year, that they are pleased with what they're seeing so far and that they approve of President Trump's performance? I, I think that's that's generally true. That's a, That's a uh, obviously, a very big generalization that is in some ways uh, unfair to make. But but I think that uh, the president, for whatever reason, um, speaks well to that community, um, and they feel that um, he, having run businesses himself um, and essentially being a private business owner, is one of them. So there, there's a level of uh, sympathy or empathy that they're feeling that they have not felt in some previous administrations. All right. So having uh, said all that, though, uh, I'm wondering, do they feel any uh, any sort of anxiety over the ability of the United States to do business with international partners like Mexico, like Canada? It's it's yeah. not great to do business with people that you've just, uh, in, a, in many cases, disrespected. You yeah, know, I think that's a very legitimate uh, point. Uh, again, um, this is my interpretation, uh, but I've seen it fairly consistently. Um, I think most people um, in that position, small business owners, um, are giving the president the benefit of the doubt and see this as negotiating tactics rather than uh, his views reflecting an end result. 
All right, we're going to leave it there, but thanks very much for giving us this insight, the mid-market in focus. Uh, Jeff Korzenik, he is an investment strategist for Fifth Third Bank, speaking about the divide between what big businesses, and Lisa, you mentioned some of those uh, chief executives, such as Lloyd Blankfein and Elon Musk coming out and saying uh, that they propose that the U.S. stay in the well, Paris Climate yeah, Accord. And Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein joined Twitter precisely for the purpose of coming out against this. And Elon Musk resigned from President Trump's uh, advisory council. So a lot of anger on that side. Indeed. We've seen a lot of changes in the advertising business over the past decade, in large part because of the changing way that people consume media. Well, Andrew Essex has had a front row seat on all of these changes. Andrew Essex is CEO of Tribeca Enterprises in New York, which, of course, is uh, the host of Tribeca Film Festival, uh, which is also in New York. But he also was the former chief executive officer of advertising agency Droga 5. And he wrote a new book called The End of Advertising, Why It Had to Die and the creative resurrection to come. Very dramatic. Why are we seeing the death of advertising? What is this death? And uh, and and where do we go from here? I really wanted to call it the death of traditional advertising, but that was a little less clickable. Yeah, no, this it's it's much more dramatic, you know. But we're talking about the eventual demise of three traditional forms, which is the thirty-second spot, the print insertion, and the classic display ad, the banner ad, and that's driven by the rise of ad blocking. The phenomena of over-the-top television, which has no commercial interruption, and general consumer behavior on platforms in which traditional advertising is not native. So the whole world is coming together to conspire against an old way of doing things, and that's called evolution. (laughs) Okay, evolution. Uh, Andrew, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about your evolution uh, to become the head of Tribeca Enterprises, because as uh, Lisa just said, many people will know it because of the Tribeca Film Festival and the uh, creation of uh, Jane Rosenthal and uh, Robert De Niro. Maybe just give a little bit of your background in the print industry as well and and how you got there to this role. I'm kind of a Darwinian mutation. I started in publishing, then I went to what was called the dark side, which is advertising. And now Or I'm, evolution, you could still use that. <laughs> exactly. And now I'm at a an event, a live event which is really about storytelling and storytelling on any platform. So although, although we do film, we do amazing television, we do amazing talks, we do amazing music, amazing VR, amazing gaming, any platform which can tell a story. And I find it's the natural conclusion of what I've been trying to do, which is just a add value to people's lives through good content. Well, you know, going going back to this idea of moving away from the banner ad or the 30-second spot, I mean, we are seeing native advertising. We're seeing people who are getting paid Expl- to explain what e- Explain what native advertising... Uh, well, I've actually yeah, right. talked with people who are paid to go to uh, people's parties in their homes or paid to go to a bar and consume Grey Goose vodka or whatever it is uh, and tell their friends about it. And this is a new form of advertising. So, you know, I see you're rolling your eyes, but I mean, are there, <laughs> is there, is there some other form that we're evolving into or other forms? What are the, what are the most popular ones that are going to survive? I think we're seeing this odd rush or flight to quality. The issue really is abundance. There's so much out there right now, so many apps, so many platforms, so much content that there's no room anymore for anything that's secondary. 
So the old ad model was based on an adjacency, not the thing, the thing that sold the thing. And there's no room. There's simply no more room for anything that's in the periphery. So what you need to do is to be good. And the uh, the embodiment of this is the Lego movie, which I think is the greatest ad ever. It's a film that people paid to see that made $500 million in revenue, but it's also a great piece of advertising. So in other words, what you're what you're saying is that the advertising has to that the advertisement has to be something that people seek out. It can't be something that simply catches someone's eye on the subway or uh, on a bus. Well, if it catches someone's eye, it's probably good. I think it just has to be good. So advertising is based on the premise that you could buy people's attention that you use paid media to get in front of people. But again, because there's so much, it doesn't work anymore. So you have to be entertaining. You have to add value. You have to provide utility. You have to be good. Crap is immediately discarded. Well, all right. We're gonna. We're not gonna disagree with you there. I mean, well, I'm no, gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. gonna I'm gonna push back. Not that crap yeah, is crap. I mean, it's like well, it's all in the eye of the of the beholder. But I, I have to push back that this is anything new because I mean, frankly. Think about the Super Bowl advertisements. There's like the Super Bowl of advertising and people focus on those. I mean, for a long time, it's about making sure that the story is important and eye-catching. I mean, this is uh, advertising 101, no? Well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think on Super Bowl, it's one day a year. But for the rest of the 364 days of the year, people don't try that hard, to be honest, with all due respect. But I thought you were going to say that we're going back to an old model of the soap opera, of GE Theater, of Mitchell Mulholland's Wild Kingdom. Sure, which is that's the, what I was going to say next. Which is really the place that I think we're evolving towards. This is the brand that brings you a piece of content, and they are the sponsor, the underwriter, but they're not the person who interrupts the thing you wanted to see. So there might be a future for a revamped Milton Berle and the Texaco Hour. A hundred percent. Don't don't don't. All don't right, be I, I feel a future coming on. Uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is your uh, relationship with Lionsgate. Give you about uh, twenty seconds. How that developed and how that demonstrates some of the changes you're talking about. Sure, that's just really about subscription video on demand. Is that you have to take a brand like Tribeca and put it on different platforms. So we need to make the obligatory shift to mobile, and that's where we live on the device. Well done. Thank you very much uh, for being with us. And, uh, of course, we've got to ask you, what's your favorite film? My favorite film? I, and it know, better the... have Robert De Niro in it. <laughs> well, the new HBO Bernie Madoff thing is pretty spectacular. But, you know, it's the golden age of television, so I'm an episodic TV guy right now. I confess, I did actually watch that this weekend, strangely enough. And go. the portrayal is stunning. Yeah, he's not too shabby. No, not at all. I want to thank you very much. Andrew Essex is the chief executive of Tribeca Enterprises. He has a new book. It is entitled The End of Advertising, Why It Had to Die, and The Creative Resurrection to come. I sense a little perhaps a money opportunity there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.